tonight, Revelation chapter 2 is where we are this morning. Take a Bible, be finding the last book of the Bible. I just said Revelation 2. I meant Revelation 3, but if you find Revelation 2, you'll be close enough. Revelation chapter number 3 this morning. Once again, let me give a Memorial Day welcome to everyone here at the Nine Mile Campus and to all of you who are gathered together on this wonderful weekend at the Spanish Trail Campus. Let's put our hands together and welcome each other to church this morning. I had the great privilege last Sunday, as you got to listen to Dustin Scott, of being over with our Spanish Trail Campus, and it was good to be back with them. It's been a while, and it's good to be back here today where all of us are together, and we're very thankful for the opportunity to share uh, God's Word. I know over the Memorial Day weekend, we're going to be doing lots of eating. You all may be grilling out tomorrow in the garage uh, because uh, you're probably going to be in the house because of bad weather that's looming headed our way. But you're probably going to eat some good food. Be very careful. Uh, the uh, sickest I've ever been in my entire life was not long after <clears throat> Judy and I got married. And I found myself in the hospital, St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, for five days. And it was all as a result of eating what seemed at the time to be some deliriously delicious chicken salad. I don't know. It had been in the refrigerator, I thought, for a couple of days. Apparently, it had been in there for two or three months. I don't know. <laughs> and so I ate it. It tasted great. And uh, within about 24 hours or so, I was messed up, and it only got worse to the point of having to go to the ER, and I was in a mess. One of our praise team singers here at Hillcrest is Eric Coley, and his Secret Service code name is E. Coli. <laughs> and that's what I had, deadly E. coli bacteria, five days in the hospital. It was a mess, and it took me well over a year for my system to get regulated where I could even eat a salad again. No peanuts, no popcorn. I mean, it was bad. It took me over a year to get right again. All because I ate something that on the outside looked really good. But down deep, there were things that were lurking that could not be seen with the naked eye that caused a very dangerous infection. And you know, the same thing that can happen in our life as we follow after Jesus Christ. Spiritual infections can happen. They can also happen in the life of a New Testament church, where on the outside it seems like we, you, I, have everything together. People know what we do on Sundays. They know we come to church. We look the part, use religious language, dress the part. But oftentimes, down deep, there is lurking something that cannot be seen with the naked eye, something that causes an incredibly damaging infection that hampers our witness and hinders our effectiveness as the people of God. Now, all of that fools people sometimes, but can I say this morning, God is never fooled like I was fooled looking at chicken salad. God can see all that stuff microscopically, 
but the effect is very much the same. You and I spiritually can become laid up, not able to function. And whenever that happens, one thing that does occur is that there is a reaction from the Lord. There are times in the Bible when God's people fall short of the glory of God. Not just lost people, but God's people. And that always engenders and brings about a reaction from God. Sometimes when God's people get off track, we see in the Bible that God becomes angry. Other times when God's people get off track, we see God weeping in his heart. But then there are times when God's people are so far flung afield, they've become so distant from their primary calling and purpose that it actually makes God's proverbial stomach rumble. And that infectious toxin that causes that kind of reaction from God is in a word what we call complacency. Complacency. Now, complacency, of course, happens <clears throat> when we become casual and when we become careless with spiritual things. And that was a situation here with a very real church that existed in very real time some 1,900 years ago. It was the church at Laodicea. And Jesus here in Revelation chapter 3 has a few choice words that he wants expressed to this church. And, of course, he uses the apostle John to convey it. John, of course, was the only remaining original apostle who's alive at the end of the first century. And the others had died martyrs' deaths, very cruel deaths. John was still living, and his life had been spared, but he'd been exiled, and he was living the latter years of his life on a little, small, rocky, craggy island called Patmos. But isolation can have its privileges, and it was there that John was given this incredible vision of heaven. It was on a Sunday. He calls it the Lord's Day when his mind and his spirit was transported to heaven and the curtain was pulled back and John got to see a glimpse of the eternal kingdom that we still anticipate seeing. And as that glimpse of heaven begins, Jesus, of course, gives him a few words that he wants him to write down. So he says to John, take this down as dictation because I have some messages to seven critical churches that I want you to help me to convey. And it's in this final message here, the seventh of these messages to these real churches that existed in real places, in real times in the region of Asia back in the first century, that Jesus begins to give his diagnosis. Verse 14 of Revelation 3. Everybody ready to read? Shout amen. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will <clears throat> spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, 
poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a very familiar passage of Scripture, probably the most familiar of all of these here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What's striking about this particular message to this particular church is that there is not one positive word that Jesus utters about this church, not one, not a single positive thing. Now, that makes it unique because if you read Jesus' messages To the other six churches, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, you find that he goes out of his way, first of all, to identify in each of the previous six things that are obviously right with them, things that they were doing that were pleasing to God. Then he comes to the seventh of these churches, and not one, I mean, how would you like to get to the judgment, stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and have Jesus look at you and say, you know what, there's not one positive thing I can say about your life. And I I don't want that to be me. And yet, here's a church that Jesus only has words of criticism for. And that's because they'd become very satisfied with their own life. They were wealthy, comfortable, selfish, hearers of the word, but doers of nothing. And apparently, nothing grieves Our Lord Jesus Christ, more than that. Let me just tell you something. I want your life, my life, the life of our church to be pleasing to God, don't you? I mean, the last thing that we want is to be a people. last thing I want about my own life is to be someone whose life is upsetting to God that causes rumblings in the Spirit of God. So what I want to do this morning is take a few minutes, see if we can get beneath the surface of this once great church and find out what went wrong. May I make three observations about a complacent church this morning? Not because I think we are one, but consider this preventative maintenance, amen. I don't want us to ever become one and neither do you. First thing we notice here is the sign of complacency. And the sign of complacency is always ineffectiveness in terms of ministry. In other words, we bear no fruit for the kingdom of God. Notice again with me verse 15. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are what? Say it out loud. Lukewarm, most familiar word in the passage, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit or vomit you out of my mouth. Everybody in here knows 
that one of the most important vital signs of the human body is temperature. What's the first thing that happens when you go to the doctor? They put a blood pressure cuff on one of your arms and a thermometer down your throat. Well, at least my nurse does that. I mean, right in there. Why? Because she wants to know what your BP is, what your temperature is. Because temperature is important. And this is the first thing Jesus does as he casts a diagnosis on this once great church that had now become a complacent church. He jams a spiritual theological thermometer in its mouth and he checks its temperature. And he finds that the temperature was neither hot nor cold. It was what? Lukewarm which in the spiritual life is not a good thing because that was obviously a big deal to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it mean? Why does it matter? Well, context is important here, as it always does when you're properly interpreting Scripture. So let's make sure we understand the context. What is the context? has everything to do with water, 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 what we're going to get a lot of tomorrow. The city of Laodicea was a prosperous city, a great city in many respects, but its one shortcoming was it had an inadequate water supply. So it had to get it from outside sources. They had to pump it in. Most of it came from a city six miles to the north called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for its abundance of water. The only problem was it was hot mineral springs, most of it. So it had to be pumped to the south, all that warm, mineral-enriched water. And it took quite a time for it to get from one place to another back in those days. And by the time it arrived in Laodicea, guess what? It was fetid. We might call it lukewarm, but it was tepid, at times foul, distasteful water, And part of the problem is, if it ever became really bad, if the citizens of Laodicea drank that water without first going through the means of purifying it, what would it do to them? It'd make them what? It'd make them sick. That's right. And that speaks to the ministry ineffectiveness of this church at Laodicea. Because really, it had become a church in name only. It wasn't recognizable as a church anymore by its works. It was only recognizable by the sign on the front lawn or whatever the case might be. They devolved into a church in name only. They were neither cold nor hot. And, you know, sometimes unlike the way this passage is always taught or a lot of the times taught, uh, there's nothing wrong with being cold. We tend to see that as a dichotomy. Hot is good and bad is cold, particularly in terms of a relationship. But remember, God says to them, I would that you would be either hot or cold. And so from the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, being cold can be a good thing. There are some things that are supposed to be cold. I just had the air conditioner serviced in my car because it was blowing warm air, and that was doing me no good. Air that comes out of an air conditioner vent is supposed to be what? Cold. Iced tea is supposed to be what? cold and that's what makes it really good right so some things are supposed to be really cold and what Jesus is saying to the church here is there's a problem with being lukewarm because I've created you to be who you are as gifted by me and to live life at the extremes so know who you were created to be by God 
and either be exhilaratingly hot or refreshingly cold, but one thing you cannot be is resting comfortably in the middle. That's not the way God designed us to live. He designed us to live and to function at the extremes. Be extreme in your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be extreme in your connection with others in the name of Jesus Christ. Be extreme in your service to the community in the name of Jesus Christ. I like to drink coffee. Any coffee lovers in the house today? That's right. You go to Starbucks and you spend a whole week's pay if you got the whole family with you. I like it. Normally have a cup sitting at my desk. This happened to me this very morning as I poured myself out of my Keurig a hot piping cup of coffee and went out on my deck to review my message for today. It was a beautiful morning. The birds were singing. And I'm the only one in the house today. It's Memorial Day. My wife has hit the road. Go see her mother. And so I'm out there in the quietness of the morning until my dog comes. And the dog wants to go out. And the dog wants to play. And so I have to get up. By the time I came back, settled the dog down, fed the dog, tended to the dog, I picked up that cup of coffee that when I took my first couple of sips out of it was piping hot just like I like it. And when it hit my taste buds, I wanted to spit it out of my mouth because it had become lukewarm. And there's nothing worse than lukewarm coffee. I want it piping hot. If it's not piping hot, I can tolerate it in a cup filled of ice, ice latte with a little hazelnut in there. Somebody say Amen. Give it to me hot or give it to me cold, but don't give it to me in between. Everybody tracking with me? That's complacency in the kingdom of God. And Jesus has a very stern diagnosis with respect to it. Because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He's not talking to Christians saying, I'm going to kick you out of heaven. That's not, everybody hear me say Amen. He's not taking legitimate Christians and saying, you're no longer going to be part of my family. No, this is simply an extreme statement of displeasure, even disgust. Why is that so? Listen, there have been times in my life, and you as parents will all say amen, you've been really ticked at your kids. Can I have an amen from the moms and dads? And you may have felt like kicking them out of the house, but you didn't kick them out of the house. You didn't disinherit them. And God doesn't do that with his kids either. But he does make statements of displeasure, and he does confront the ills, and he confronts what's wrong in an attempt to get us turned around and back to the right. And why is God so upset with this? Why does the Lord speak in such harsh terms? Well, because he knows what the damage a lukewarm Christian can do to the effectiveness of the church's ministry and kingdom ministry. A lukewarm believer does way more harm to the ministry effectiveness of a church than a thousand stone-cold pagans can ever do. Because people watch. And you know what they see? You know what a lost world sees when they look at a lukewarm believer? They don't see any difference. Don't see anything different. They don't see any, any radical change. They don't see a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't see the holiness of God. They don't see a holy man of God. They don't see a holy woman of God. They see... It's like looking in the mirror to a lost person. And what does Jesus call that? Hypocrites. It's what? Hypocrisy. That's the very definition of it. A lukewarm believer is by definition 
hypocritical. And that's why Christ has such a problem with it. And it's what keeps people by the tens of thousands from ever darkening the door of a church. Because when an unbelieving world looks, they see salt that's no longer salty. And Jesus said, if the salt loses its saltiness, wherewith can it be made salty again? I mean, it's ineffective at that point. And we just go through the motions. From a gospel perspective, just kind of wasting everybody's time. So that's why Christ speaks to this issue in radically direct terms. The sign of complacency is ineffectiveness. Lukewarm hypocrisy. All right? So that's the diagnosis. We turn secondly to the cause of complacency. That's what it is. How does it come about? Well, in a word, self-sufficiency. We just get to a point where everything's so good that we really don't need God anymore. We're not desperate for God anymore. At the time Jesus dictates this message to John, Laodicea may have been the wealthiest city in that part of the ancient world. Its wealth came from a couple of distinct sources. It was a manufacturing center that became known for its production of wool. They produced a very distinct, unusual, the only place in the world you could find it kind of wool that was black, glossy, and very soft. And it was in high demand, so it made them a lot of money. And because they came into a lot of money, they became a financial center. Laodicea was rich in terms of the banking industry. And so as a result of this high-quality wool, its position as a major financial center, you can understand why Jesus would say what he does here about them in verse 17. For you say, I am rich and have what? Prospered. And I need nothing, not realizing your true condition. Jesus says, I can see down deep. That's what everybody else thinks about you, and that's what you think about yourself. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Very unusual. The most disastrous thing that can happen to the people of God happened to them. Their material prosperity led to this independent, self-confident spirit that led them to believe that they were secure in their own resources and secure in their own abilities. Simply put, that was a church that didn't need God anymore. Oh, they acknowledged God. They gave God a nod. They used the name of God. They went through religious motions, but truth be told, they had everything under control. Man, probably what, the bank presidents probably went to this church. And who needs God when you know the president of the First National Bank of Laodicea? Right? We just call him. And that's what happened to this church. And that's the reputation of the church in our generation, particularly the Western church, where by and large, <clears throat> we're wealthier than we've ever been, more knowledgeable than we've ever been. These are really good days in a lot of ways. And I'm not against being wealthy. I think wealth can be harnessed and used in ways that honor the Lord. And so there's nothing wrong with that. We could go into a theology of of finance and stewardship. We've talked about that any number of times. It's the love of money that causes various kinds of evil, not money itself. And this church apparently had fallen in love with their money. 
They loved their money more than they loved their Lord. And so they were wealthier than they've ever been, more knowledgeable, same is true today. We're better educated than we've ever been before in our history, more available things to do than we've ever had to do before. There's probably not a person in here, not many anyway, whose refrigerator's not packed full. We got freezers and extra refrigerators in the garage. We've got three and four car garages. We got our savings accounts, 401ks, all of that stuff, life plan all mapped out. None of those are bad. All of those can be good. The problem is when they become more important to you than God is important to you because all of those things can become idolatrous. They can become idols. We can become idolatrous with respect to those things. And God systematically gets what? Squeezed out. Now, we'll give God a nod. We'll call on the name of God, but usually it's in an 811 or a 911 circumstance, isn't it? Oh, listen, I love the Lord, and we'll ring him up when something gets tight or when there's a bad diagnosis or when we lose our job or whatever the case might be. But generally, we're prone to live like we've got everything under control, and it's that kind of independence that blinds a person to the actual poverty of their real spiritual condition. Again, Jesus uses words here in verse 17 that are highly unusual, strange terms to use when talking about the church. Wretched, pitiable. I mean, I my dad say that when I would disappoint my dad. Son, you're just pitiful. That's just pitiful. That's what Jesus says. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and what? Naked, totally exposed. I mean, that's the kind of language that's usually reserved in the Bible for the spiritually lost, not for the people of God. And yet sometimes, here's the thing, you put a typical believer beside someone who professes, or a typical unbeliever beside someone who professes to be a believer, and there are times that you'd be hard-pressed to figure out which was which just by the way they lived and by the way you observed their life. And this is why this message is so very important to a modern church because it's a reminder of where God wants us to be on the spectrum and how God wants us to live on the spectrum. He wants us to live and get out of the center, get out of the middle and live life on the extremes. This is Jesus' way of saying, look, I delivered you out of a tepid, unproductive, unfulfilling life. This is not what I sent my son to die so that you could have. I want you to live to the extreme. Let there be no doubt to anybody that you are who you claim to be in Jesus Christ. But what do you do when you find yourself convicted that you've drifted into a lukewarm life? That happens. It doesn't happen quickly for a believer. Most of the time it's gradual. That's the thing about drift. Drift just happens slowly over time, right? Kind of like when you're at the beach and you push out your little raft. You get laid back on it to soak in a few rays. And you went out 90 degrees perpendicular to where you set up camp on the beach. You left mama on the beach. You left daddy on the beach. They're guarding the cooler. 
and you push out and you kick back and relax a while and close your eyes and you doze off for a minute in the warmth of the sunshine and you think you've only been napping for just two or three minutes and the reality is probably been 10, 15 and then you open your eyes and you look back to the shore and mom or dad nowhere in sight. They've been raptured straight to heaven. No, they haven't been raptured to heaven. You've just slowly drifted down the coast. Imperceptibly, unaware that the current was pulling you away from ground zero. It's what happens in spiritual lives all the time. Aren't you thinking, well, we have the scriptures to remind us of where we are today and the importance of where we're to live our life every day. So when you find yourself there, what do you do? Well, that brings us to the remedy for complacency, and it is, in a word, intimacy. Intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's the only way to live life on the extreme. A deep, abiding, personal, transformational, daily, daily, daily relationship with Jesus Christ. The first thing that happens when you find yourself in a lukewarm condition is to repent. Jesus told the first church that he wrote to, a church that had left their first love, the church at Ephesus, how do we get it back? Repent and do the things you did at first. Boom. That's the first thing that needs to happen. You need to turn from your sin Turn from your wicked ways. I just love that throughout the Bible, God's called out his people in times when they couldn't have cared less about him and given them a word of hope. He reminds us today as he reminded them centuries ago. I love 2 Chronicles 7.14. I'm not sure it has anything to do with the United States of America, which is the way it's been preached for the last 20 years. It has everything to do with the people of God. If my people, if my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and what? Turn from their wicked ways. That's repentance. Turn from their wicked ways. Then I will heal from heaven and forgive their sin. And what? Heal their land. That's where the healing comes from. That's how you get flung back to the extremes again. It begins with repentance. Call on the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Pray. Seek his face. Do it every day. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent of your sin. And by the way, let me remind you, repentance, we tend to think of repentance as a one and done thing in the kingdom of God. I repented of my sins on July the 11th, 1975. Amen. And you haven't done it since? How about this morning? How about this morning? How about tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning? Repentance is a daily discipline. We talk about the discipline of Bible reading and the discipline of prayer and the discipline of fasting and the discipline of journaling. How about the discipline of repentance? That's a spiritual discipline that ought to be practiced every day along with Bible reading and prayer and all of those other things that make for a mature Christian life. What's the root cause of complacency in a believer's life? A slow drift away from your daily, quiet, alone time with God. 
Show me a person who's complacent in their spiritual life, indifferent, apathetic, take it or leave it. Couldn't seem to care less about things that are important to God. I'll show you somebody rarely picks up the Bible, rarely feeds on the Word, rarely connects to God in prayer, rarely connects with others in church community for accountability, mutual love and support and growth. Complacency happens because of spiritual neglect. You shut Jesus Christ out of your life. You don't do it intentionally. If somebody pressed you to the wall, do you love Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But you've drifted. And Christ has systematically been marginalized to the sidelines. What Jesus says here in verse number 20, one of the most familiar verses in Revelation, we oftentimes hear it used in an evangelistic kind of way, but that's really not the immediate context. I don't think there's anything wrong with using it to support evangelism because there are other parables that Jesus told that basically say the same thing in an evangelistic context, but that's not the way it's being used here. Jesus is talking to the church here. He's talking to his people here, and what does he say? Let's say it out loud together. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Man, it's hard to believe. What you have here is a picture of Jesus Christ outside of the church. He's been relegated to a place outside the church. He's standing outside the proverbial door of the church, banging on the door of the church, Christ the head of the church, Christ the Lord of the church, Christ who established the church, Christ who died for the church, Christ who is coming again for the church, has been pushed out of the church, banging on the door of the church, begging them to open the door and let him back in. And I don't know about you, we don't ever want that kind of a situation in our church, ever. We want the door to stay open so that we can move in and out with Christ as we live in constant fellowship with him, which is what he wants. Jesus does, he's not wanting to be recognized by the church. He's wanting to have fellowship with the church. He's wanting to eat with the church. That's how we know Jesus was a Baptist. Somebody say amen this morning. He's wanting to eat with the church. Table fellowship. Man, that's a, that's a picture of intimacy right there. To sit down and dine. This is a word that refers to the last meal of the day. Breakfast was used to be quick and light. Lunch would usually be on the go or light if at all. But then you had dinner, and that was the meal that people lingered over. That was the meal that people relaxed over. Unlike so many today, man, you need a 21st century preacher to explain dinner to a church today because people are just hurry, scurrying, coming and going. Nobody got in a hurry at dinner. It was pleasant. It was relaxed. It was unhurried table fellowship, and that speaks, of course, to the kind of relationship that our Lord wants to have with you, unrushed, unhurried, meaningful fellowship that's absolutely necessary for life change and for Christian growth 
and Christian maturity because with, apart from that kind of a disciplined relationship, if you don't have that built into your life, you will tend to drift toward complacency at some time or another in your walk with Christ. And you'll tend to lose interest in things that genuinely matter to God. And it's at that point, even though you may look to many people like you've got your life together, the reality is we at that point are just going through the religious motions of life. We're no different than the old covenant people of God who did the same thing. Where God looks at them and says, I hate, I despise your religious fees. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they can be as wool. So on this Memorial Day Sunday, as we remember the price that our Lord paid for our salvation, why not make a decision to listen as Jesus knocks on the door of your heart today? God's greatest desire <clears throat> is that we open the door and begin to live life to the extreme, living either piping hot or exhilaratingly cold and refreshing anything but lukewarm. This, brothers and sisters, is God's word. And let all who agree say amen today.